This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Really great to see everybody in the flesh. Thank you for coming. Um, I wrote this book uh, that came out like just as the pandemic broke out. Uh, can you hear me in the back? Speak to the mic. Okay. Can you hear me better now? Okay. Um, what was I? What was I saying? Yeah. So the book came out right as a pandemic uh, started within like a couple months, and so I've done a bunch of book talks all on the screen, um, which is has some benefits because you can you know talk to people all over the world through the magic of the interweb, but uh, it's just weird, like, talking to a screen, and you have no idea if people are, like, asleep or clipping their toenails or what's happening, but here, like, if you clip your toenails, I can see, I'll know what's happening, um, so this is much better. Um, I'm excited to, to, to see all of you and get to have this conversation. Um, I think, you know, when I was thinking about this talk and what to call it, um, or, you know, something along the lines of like, why you should care about the economy and be able to explain it and think about it and talk about it. That's not a very short and pithy title. So we went with the People's Guide to Capitalism, which, you know, does the trick. But I do want to start by saying that I do think it's really important. And um, I wouldn't have spent, you know, years uh, of my life writing this book if I didn't think so, and I became even more convinced over the last couple of years since it's come out um, that really, like, we have to be able to grapple with the economy, we have to be able to talk about it, we have to be able to explain it in, in, in ways that people understand. Um, you know, there's an idea out there that the economy is too complicated, it's technical, it's for, like, a few expert people to understand. Um, or, you know, it's boring, um, or the two are related because if you don't understand something, then it's pretty boring. Um, but I think that the problem with making those kind of concessions about the economy is that it really disarms us in understanding what it is that we're up against. You know, capitalism is an economic system, um, you know, and it can't be, the economy isn't relegated to, like, the stock market gyrations and things like that. Uh, but every aspect of our lives, whether it's um, the ups and downs of grocery prices or the fact that the minimum wage hasn't gone up in years and years uh, or student loan debt and, you know, uh, economic assistance from the government uh, and so on and so forth. And not just the like clear bread and butter issues, but everything from health care to uh, climate change, um, all of these things, uh, all major social and political questions. Uh, in society are really determined by, um, you know, the compulsion towards short-term profiteering uh, and, um, you know, the, the whims of the market. So I think 
um, I think it's really critical for that reason because it, it is the, the beast that we're up against. We have to understand it. And I think that, you know, besides just the disarming our movement in terms of understanding what we're up against uh, and what kind of strategies we should, you know, have because of that, um, I think it also is important not to abdicate the field of economic conversation to, you know, basically conservative politicians and mainstream economists, which is who dominates the discussion, right? So if you think about how inflation is being talked about, um, and, and I'll talk more about inflation a little bit later, but the mainstream assumptions are just repeated ad nauseum that, you know, wa workers' wages are too high, gov the government spent too much money during the pandemic, uh, that's what's to blame for inflation, and the only solution for it is, um, you know, basically to induce a recession um, so that we can have a higher unemployment and, and bring down uh, inflation. Um, and, you know, or if you think about what it means in terms of framing the discussion about uh, social spending, that last year's Build Back Better Act, um, you know, which was a very ambitious bill, gets like whittled down and reframed uh, into an Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, and there's positive things in there, and that's a whole other conversation. But the the, the fact that it needs to be like reframed um, in that way and and, and and contorted and whittled down uh, has everything to do with the way that the discussion around uh, economics unfolds. Um, so you know, we're not going to be able to just reframe that discussion like one person at a time understanding Marxist economics. Um, but I do think that you know, the, in left media, in our electoral work, in our labor work, we have to be able to push back against the the dominant um, you know narrative uh, and put forward a left economic agenda. Um, so I'm going to try to convince you over the course of the next half hour so that, that, that you should care about the economy. That part is hopefully easy because you're here, um, so you, you do, um, but also that you can explain it, you can understand it, um, we can talk about it in ways that make sense to people and that that is important. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to start by just introducing three Marxist ideas that I think are like really important building blocks for then understanding everything else of what's happening uh, today. Um, and it's value and exploitation and competition. Just I'll, I'll go through those three, those those three concepts. Um, so first of all, value. Um, you know what makes capitalism tick uh, is like a ceaseless growth of value. Uh, and never before in history have we had like so much wealth, so many things, such advanced um, you know productive capacity. Um, th this is a system that has to grow and has to be keep, keep moving forward or it goes into a tailspin. Uh, so Marx defined uh, capital as self-expanding value, like value that, that expands, uh, um, you know, of its own volition. And I'll talk more about how that happens. But he, he summed it up through a simple formula, which I promise is the only formula. I won't make you do math. Um, right now, <laughs> um, but I'm going to just say one quick formula. Uh, can people, if I yell without the microphone for a moment, okay. So this is basically this is basically the summary of how capitalism works. Can people see the letters in the back? It just says M, which means money to C, which is commodities, um, 
to M with a little doohickey next to it. Technically, it's called M prime, um, which is more money. So the capitalists invest money, um, and that goes into like you know uh, inputs into production uh, as well as labor costs. In that production process, they make C, which is commodities, and then at the end of the process, they sell it for more money than what they originally invested in. And all of capitalism really is like summed up in this little doohickey. Like that's that that's the point of capitalism is to make more money, right? To add have added value at the end of the of, of the process. Um, so so yeah, and Mark, like Mark said. It would be absurd and empty if it was just M to C to M with no doohickey at the end. If it was just you start out with a certain amount of money and then you make the same amount of money, then no one would invest anything. Um, but it's it's that last more money uh, that that is the goal of capitalism. So so what is value exactly, right? Under capitalism, it's a very specific thing, uh, and it's not how actually valuable something is in terms of how useful it is. Uh, if, that, if we measure value in, in, in this society by how useful something is, then like bread and water would be more valuable than diamonds, right? Um, but uh, under capitalism, value means something else. And so what Marx did in explaining it was he split the concept of value into two parts, use value and exchange value. Uh, the use value is what something is used for. Exchange value is what it exchanges for relative to other things. So like the use value of a chair is to sit in it. The exchange value of a chair is what does it exchange for um, you know, relative to other commodities. Um, and the capitalist economy is just based on producing and selling things. And in all of human history, human beings have always needed things and made things. Uh, but under capitalism, things are produced in order to sell. That's the, the purpose of production. Uh, and the capitalist cares uh, solely about the exchange value of something, uh, not really its use value. Um, you know, for me and you, like mostly we're concerned with use values, right? Like whether we have a chair or a thumbtack matters a lot if we're looking for some place to sit. Um, but for a capitalist, you know, uh, like. You, some, if you run a utility company, it's not because you love to see things light up. Uh, people that run pharmaceutical uh, companies, uh, sadly, aren't in it for the love of health. Um, whether they're making vaccines or electric grids or nuclear bombs, it's all the same as long as there's money to be made at the end of the process. So that calculation, how much money is to be made, is why you know global vaccination has been held hostage to uh, pharmaceutical companies' patents. Um, and that, of course, has everything to do with why the pandemic has dragged on forever as the, vac as the uh, virus is allowed to uh, travel across the globe and mutate and so on. Um, it's why fossil fuels continue to be mined and drilled uh, and burned despite the fact that everyone everywhere knows that this is literally making our planet uninhabitable. It's why young adults have to enter into decades of debt uh, in order to afford higher education. So what then determines this all-important exchange value, the value uh, by which things exchange in relation to each other, is how much labor time goes into making them. And that's the like, you know, at the heart of what is ca called the labor theory of value. It's like a key Marxist concept, even though, um, you know, Marx didn't come up with it, it was sort of seen as a given 
among classical economists like uh, you know Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Um, but the basic idea is that the amount of labor time that it takes to produce something, including all of its inputs, determines its value. So cars are always going to be more expensive than bread because it takes a lot more time to produce cars and all the inputs that go into making cars than it does to bake a loaf of bread. Um, and, um, you know, therefore the value of things, rather than being some kind of an inherent quality, changes over time, like when technological advances make it possible to produce something more quickly, it actually becomes cheaper, right? So the price of cars, like, halved, um, you know, a century ago because of the advent of the assembly line. Uh, or computers in the 1970s were, you know, cost thousands of dollars. They were basically luxury items that very few people owned, um, even though they were way less powerful than today's much cheaper computers. Uh, because it's just the technology exists now to produce them uh, more more quickly. Um, so value isn't something that's kind of naturally imbued in a commodity. Like diamonds aren't just you know expensive because they're shiny and pretty. It's about like the time to to find and and mine and refine and all the rest of it that goes into making diamonds. Uh, value is socially determined by how much labor time is necessary to produce commodities in a given time. Uh, at, a, at a given place. Um, so one one important um, you know thing to say about it uh, about the labor theory of value is that it's not like a one-to-one -one ratio with price um, that the two things are are separate and Marx is very clear about that. You can't peg like an hour of labor to a number of dollars or cents. Um, the labor theory of value is a good overall guide to understanding you know, the basic dynamics and driving force of value under capitalism, how it is that value changes over time, how it is that it feeds this competitive process among capitalists. Um, the prices are more complicated owing to a number of factors, including uh, very uh, importantly supply and demand, uh, will make prices basically fluctuate above or below um, a base value, what economists often refer to as a natural price. Um, will be pushed up or down, um, you know, by supply and demand. Um, so how it works, basically, I'll, I'll just, since supply and demand is important, I'll just stop for a moment to explain it, um, is that if there, you know, if a demand for a particular product goes up but supply doesn't keep up, then companies can get away with charging a lot more for it because essentially, like, consumers are bidding against each other for a limited amount of supply. Or, like, if you go to the... Um, the hotel, like, cafe food area here, you have to pay, like, $6 for a, a bag of pretzels um, because, you know, there's a limited amount of supply of food here and there's demand for it. So if you're not going to pay $6 for it, somebody else will. Um, so they can get away with, with charging something like that. Um, on the other hand, if demand drops uh, for some given goods and there's too much supply, then companies uh, reduce their prices so that they're not left holding, you know, a bunch of dead inventory. Um, and I, I say too much supply in, in scare quotes because it's not because there's not enough need for something. You know, there could be a glut in the, in the housing market, for instance. It's not because people don't need places to live. It's a question of um, are, what economists refer to as effective demand. Are, are, is there the money, you know, backing up that demand? Are people going to uh, pay uh, X amount of money for, for these goods. Um, 
And, and I'll just say for, for a minute about inflation, because I think it's a good example of the difference between value and price, that you know, inflation is just a rise in prices across the economy, right? And that doesn't happen because the value of things has necessarily risen, because the rise in, in the value of something comes about if more labor time is needed to produce it. So like, for instance, an example of the value of something going up is like, you know, if there's a shift to fracked oil, you know, fracking is just a lot more of a labor intensive process than conventional oil extraction. That would lead to, um, you know, a rise in the value of oil. But inflation um, is a rise in prices due to changes in supply and demand. Um, so for instance, um, one of the contributing factors to the current inflationary crisis um, is uh, like the, the war, uh, the Russian war in Ukraine um, that has led to like sanctions on Russian oil and so on. That has reduced the amount of oil by like 3 million barrels per day um, and that constricts supply of oil uh, and therefore um, oil companies get away with, with charging much more. Um, there's other aspects of the inflation crisis that I'll come back to, but I just wanted to flag that as an example um, to, to, as, as sort of the difference between uh, value and, and price. So the second concept um, is, that I wanted to, to explain um, is profit and how Marxists uh, understand uh, where profit comes from. Um, and, and it's, as I said, it's the point of capitalism, right, is capitalism doesn't live or breathe without profits. Um, it's to increase the amount of money that they get at the end of their process more than what they initially invested. And the conventional you know, wisdom around where profit comes from is that it, it's, it's from you know, the cunning of the market, right? Like capitalists have a bright idea, a mission to Mars, or you know, a pretty new iPhone or whatever, and they're good at marketing it, and um, you know, they know how to buy cheap and sell dear and so on and so forth. But the reality is that, you know, sure, there's some marketing genius involved in making iPhones more marketable than Androids. That doesn't explain why company, why both companies, you know, are able to increase their wealth tremendously over time. And to understand how it is that capitalist wealth grows over time, Marx, the way Marx uh, explained it was it's basically like uh, capitalism has a magical goose that lays golden eggs. Um, that that extra value is extracted in the, in the process of production, uh, not in the marketplace. And the secret hidden within the production process, the so-called, you know, the magical goose uh, of, of capitalism is actually us. It's our ability to labor and produce. Um, and it's the, a special commodity within capitalism of labor power. Um, so labor power is, you know, our ability to work. Um, and it's become a commodity under capitalism, right? We buy and, you know, we, we sell our, our labor power for a wage. Um, so you could say that the exchange value of labor power is, um, you know, measured in our wages. And what determines the exchange value of our labor power is like any other commodity. It's the amount of labor time that goes into producing that commodity, the, the, in this case, the commodity of labor power. And another way to put it, right, is our wages are determined by the amount of labor time required to keep us alive, to daily reproduce our ability to work, 
um, and our readiness, you know, to go in every day and to keep our children alive so that they can uh, replace us in the workforce one day. So, like, the value of uh, food, rent, clothing, training and education, and any other necessities deemed essential by society make up the value of labor power. So if, for example, um, let's say social norms attach an average of $120 uh, to the cost of our minimal daily needs, um, then that would like loosely translate into the value of labor power or our daily wage. Um, that's, you know, of course, an oversimplification. Um, but in, in reality, the cost of subsistence uh, and reproduction of workers is determined both socially and historically, you know, what do I mean by that? Historically, it, the, the cost of labor power uh, is, reflects the changing costs um, needed to keep us alive, you know, the, the changing costs of producing food um, or acquiring skills, etc. Um, and it's also socially determined uh, by, you know, what's considered the social norm of how much money we need to keep us alive. Um, so, and the role of oppression is really critical there, right? Things like racism and sexism and nativism, um, to name a few uh, central ones, play a huge role in determining uh, what the bosses can get away with paying us, right? So, um, having created these constituencies that are more or less vulnerable to economic coercion, basically, either through threats of deportation, uh, through the burden of childcare, um, through, um, you know, the systematic withholding of resources and the cheapening of life through state violence, um, you know, as well as just ideologically determining what's considered socially acceptable um, standard of living. Um, and, and, but then on the flip side of it, you know, the other thing that makes labor commodity a special, uh, labor power a special commodity is that unlike a pen, you know, like the price of a pen is um, the price of a pen, but our labor power is owned by humans that are capable of organizing and making demands uh, and winning, you know, things like higher wages and stuff like that. So in that sense, it's also socially determined. So if all that explains the exchange value of labor power uh, paid out in a wage, what's the use value of labor power? It's to, um, it's to create uh, more value. It's the creator of new value. And that's sort of like what I was saying about the labor theory of value before. Like what determines something's value is how much labor has gone into it. Um, so the heart of understanding where profits come from is distinguishing between what labor uh, sells for in the form of a wage and then what labor produces. Uh, and those are two very different things. Um, so a worker is paid one thing in wages but then will normally create much more value uh, during the course of uh, their work shift. Um, essentially, we enter into an agreement with our bosses, right, where they own our time, they own um, our ability to, late, to labor during that time, and they own whatever it is that we've produced during that time. They own the fruits of that labor while, while we're on the clock. Um, so the example that I, that I use in my book um, for explaining exploitation is, is Starbucks. Um, and I had picked that example as it's simple and straightforward, but now, of course, it's also very timely as um, workers at Starbucks are, are pushing to change, um, you know, the, 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 um, how, how much or how little they're, they're exploited. Um, but let's say you work at Starbucks and they pay you $120 uh, 
for the day, for your eight-hour shift, you could probably make $120 worth of fancy coffee drinks in an hour or two, um, sometimes less. Uh, but you can't, like, throw down your towel after two hours and say, well, you know, fair is fair. I've made you the money that you paid me. Uh, I'm going home. Um, you know, the rest of your shift, you're basically working for free. Um, and the extra value that you produce during that stolen time is uh, surplus value, as Marx called it. And that's the basis for capitalist profits. So capitalism is, um, you know, therefore a social structure. It's made up of classes that have different material interests. We have the one class, the capitalists, um, that because they own the stores and the machinery and the capital needed to produce what Marx called the means of production, um, they can buy our labor power and put it to use to make more value for themselves. And then you have another class that really only has one main commodity that we could sell, which is our, our labor power. Um, so, so the third kind of last um, thing that I wanted to define um, is competition, because you know we've talked about the exploitative relationship between capitalists and workers, um, but there's also an important relationship among capitalists uh, that's important to draw out, and that's of course competition, and that really drives capitalism forward is the process of, of competition. Because um, capitalists extract value from us when we're working, uh, but that doesn't mean that that value automatically translates into profits unless they're able to sell the goods that we make. So, you know, Starbucks may be, you know, very good at exploiting its workforce, and it is, but that doesn't mean, you know, in the first like year and a half of the pandemic, they had to close, I think it was like 600 to 800 stores because there weren't that many people out buying fancy coffee drinks. Um, and so that's, that's how they realize their profit, when people actually buy the goods. Um, so simultaneous to the battle taking place in the workplace around the terms of our exploitation is a battle between capitalists, um, you know, because if each capitalist just had their own market, it'd be very simple. They would just make that magical goose lay some golden eggs, and then they would... Um, automatically sell it, um, you know, and, and realize that profit, etc. Um, and, uh, you know, boom, they'd have a profit. But the reality is that they have to uh, engage in the competitive struggle to make sure that it's their products that find buyers. And this is the part where the question of marketing genius um, arguably plays a role, although even there it's relatively a small part because the reality is that you know, like a company like Samsung has been able to produce Android phones um, more cheaply than Apple, um, and that's what's gotten them a greater market share uh, than, than Apple has, um, rather than just like marketing genius or whatever. And so the main driver of competition is the need to reduce the price of commodities in order to be able to sell them more cheaply than your competitors. Um, so when Ford revolutionized car production, with um, the assembly line, they were able to create a mass consumer base that, for cars that hadn't existed before. Um, and then that set the standard for what car prices would be, and that then set the standard for you know, the what kind of production process other car companies would have to engage in. They, you know, you have to, if you were another auto company, you had to either adapt or go out of business. Um, so, um, so companies have to produce as cheaply as possible, and uh, mostly they do that by reducing the cost of labor, unfortunately. 
Um, and they do that either through cutting wages and benefits or by introducing labor-saving technology so that workers produce more goods in less time. Uh, and, it, and that means they have to constantly invest in technology to keep up or ideally to get ahead um, and gain efficiencies in production. So at best, this competitive struggle fuels innovation and that's what like the defenders of capitalism are always talking about that we should be grateful for the innovations of capitalism. Um, but you know that always happens at our expense. So we become like mechanical appendages to assembly lines. Um, but it also means that the drive for profit happens at any cost, you know, whether like it's meatpacking companies reopening in the middle of the pandemic during completely unsafe conditions, whatever it takes to make a profit, it happens at, at any cost. Uh, because to lose profit means that you lose your market share and you lose the ability to invest those profits into the necessary technologies that keep you ahead of the game. Um, so, and then, and then more broadly um, than that, the market also holds all of us hostage to whatever is or isn't profitable, right? So even in the supposed good times of capitalism, when things are going, you know, quote unquote well, the consequences are dire. It means investment flows to fossil fuels instead of sustainable, um, you know, uh, ecological sustainability, or it flows towards pharmaceutical windfalls rather than uh, uh, equitable vaccine distribution. But in, in bad times, during like recessions and crises, it just throws our lives into total like chaos and despair. Um, you know, I, I, I was gonna get into a couple of details about, um, you know, the supply and demand, but I'll, I'll just skip ahead here just to, um, well, okay, well, I'll just say, so, you know, the. Our, our lives are like, you know, subject to the whims of the market. And I, I was just thinking about like during the pandemic, for instance, when there was a, a, a shortage of masks and ventilators and so on, um, that basically that's just opened up the, um, you know, major price gouging and, you know, masks going for at the, at the height of the these shortages, um, pay, paying like, 10 or 20 times more um, than uh, the average price had been before. States were literally bidding against each other for ventilators. I mean, this is like totally nuts um, behavior, like way to deal with uh, a pandemic. But even like short of like extreme conditions, like during a global pandemic, like if you think about something like housing, you know, if we didn't have a housing market, if we just had housing, <laughs> um, then it would be, you know, complicated, but not impossible to figure out, okay, so how much housing is needed? How do we plan for that? How do we marshal the right amount of resources and labor to build the houses where they're needed? But instead we have a housing market that depends on having to figure out, you know, how much effective demand is there? How much money is there to be spent on houses at a given price? On top of that, Housing is a speculative asset, so you know private equity firms buy them in order to sell them, you know more in more uh, uh, more uh, uh, expensive uh, prices. Um, and on top of that, not only are they spec is housing a speculative asset, but then the debt for purchasing houses, like mortgages, are used to create these complicated financial cocktails, um, you know, and basically create this insane casino. So. 
you know, even in not extreme circumstances of a pandemic, it's virtually impossible to get supply and demand uh, into this like magic equilibrium um, that the, uh, the neoclassical economists insist uh, we can get. Um, so the last point I want to end on, I, I didn't get into like Marxist theory of economic crisis. If people are interested in, in more of that, we can talk about it in discussion. Um, but I'll just say something about the current crisis that we're in. Um, you know, because built into the system of capitalism is basically a number of inherent, you know, contradictions that are built into the system. And there's various debates among different Marxist economists about how many contradictions and which contradictions are more important than others. Um, but, uh, but, but basically contradictions that, um, you know, undermine capitalism's own goal of profitability and in the process throw our lives into chaos. Um, and an important lesson of you know the inflationary crisis that, that we're in and, and previous ones is that capitalists don't necessarily mind recessions. It's something that they sometimes call for um, and want because it's a way of disciplining the working class. Um, it's a mass unemployment, uh, falling wages and benefits. Um, it's ultimately through that kind of disciplining as well as um, the destruction of some sections of capital that profitability is restored. Um, and today, you know, the Fed and uh, mainstream media talk a lot about, you know, worries about that is unemployment too low or wages too high? Is that feeding rising inflation? Um, you know, and the, the basic argument here is that when inflation is quote unquote too low, then workers' bargaining power increases because if you know that you could um, not easily be replaced on the job because uh, there's not that many people looking for jobs, or you could easily yourself go and find another job um, with some success, then the more confident you are of that, the more it increases your bargaining power and you can make greater demands for, for higher wages and so on. And so if wages eventually rise, then um, that will feed into a higher cost of production for the capitalists and they will pass off that rising cost of production to consumers through um, higher prices. And so that's the kind of the, the, the basic argument about why they're always concerned about unemployment uh, being too low. Um, and then the, the, the solution to that is then to raise interest rates um, from the Federal Reserve, um, which makes it, you know, in order to cool the economy, which is a euphemism for saying there's less credit, you know, credit is, is more, becomes more expensive, so then there's less investment, um, and when there's less investment, there's less jobs. Um, so it's a way, cooling the economy is a way of, of raising unemployment. Um, and there's big problems with that narratives, um, which we can talk more about in discussion, not the least of which is that, like, at least at this moment, like, wages aren't a driving force of inflation. Um, but more importantly, I think it gets to the fact that the whole question of inflation is, um, you know, basically inflation is a site of class conflict. Which class gains at whose expense? Like who's going to be made to pay the price for rising costs of production? Um, if it was the case that the cost of production was higher, but the boss, you know, but, but companies weren't allowed to raise their prices past a certain point, then it would just mean lower profitability, um, which is unacceptable to, to the capitalists, but 
that is another solution. Uh, but that's not the solution that's obviously um, talked about in, in mainstream discussions. Um, so, and, 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 and more deeply too, the reality is that, you know, even if we disagree with the specifics of, you know, um, what the Fed has on offer and we should, um, it is true in the long term that anything that increases the bargaining power of working people will put a squeeze on profitability and that that's always the tension. Um, if there's a threat to profitability, that also has the potential of feeding into inflation if we don't, you know, control it by things like price controls and other things. Um, and that that brings me back to basically where I want to, where I started and where I want to end, which is just the importance of understanding and being able to reframe the economic discussion and narrative, um, you know, so that for this and other inflationary crises, um, the for them not to be resolved on the backs of working people and create further inequality, we have to be able to make demands that actually call for democratizing the economy, um, that call for greater planning, you know, for things like price controls, for things like, um, you know, government investment in um, production to shore up the supply end of um, the, the, the problem, um, to socialize and nationalize industries um, and, and, and costs um, in order to exert a greater public control uh, over the economy. These are the kinds of demands that make up a more you know, radical economic agenda. Um, and, then, and then I think long term, we need to be able to connect up that you know, a radical economic agenda of today with a long term vision that understands that you know, capitalism is inherently unstable. It resolves its crises on our backs. Um, and, and even small advances in wages and, and, and small increases in, um, you know, social spending are capable of throwing the whole system into a crisis. Um, you know, that, that should tell us that we really, um, you know, humanity can and must uh, do much better uh, than, than a capitalist economy. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.